Hey, everybody. Join us as we delve into our favorite dark tales and paranormal mysteries. Venture with us beyond the safe places that exist in daylight as we go Beyond Beyond the the shadows. Shadows. True crime. Paranormal. Hauntings. UFOs. Cryptids and unsolved mysteries. Conspiracy theories. Past lives. Reincarnation. And all the like are just a few of the topics that we will tackle. If it haunts your fucking dreams, then it will be on our show. Hey there, welcome back to Beyond the Shadows. This is episode four. Episode four. Uh, thanks for sticking with us, guys. Uh, so, what do you got for us this week, bud? I'm going to do a little uh, near-death experience. Uh, got a uh, neurosurgeon named Eben Alexander, and uh, I picked his case because... Just because of the fact this guy was a neurosurgeon, he sounds so, like a neurosurgeon. With yeah, a name that, you know? that's a that's a pretty fancy name. <laughs> that's definitely a Harvard name yeah. for sure, Eben Alexander. But no, he the reason I pick him is just there's a million you know out of body experiences, near death experiences, stuff. But just the fact it's coming from a neurosurgeon, you know, this is such a solid, you know, individual. He's got such a education you know the brain and how it works and just the fact that you know he knows so much about or thought he knew so much about consciousness and he he documented the process like the yeah so i mean he's written several books on the subject and what i'm going to go over is mostly over one of his books uh proof of heaven and you know he's written several since and they're all they're all to do with the same subject but uh yeah this one is really just the beginning of how it all happened and everything so a really cool book, something you guys should all definitely check out. So, all right, uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be back with uh, Doctor Evan Alexander in two seconds. So who is Eben Alexander? Well, Eben Alexander is an American neurosurgeon and author. His book, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, written in 2012, described his near-death experience that happened in 2008 under a medically induced coma when treated for meningitis. He asserts that the coma resulted in brain death, that consciousness is not a product of the brain, and it also permits access to the afterlife. So, Eben was born December 11th, 1953 in Charlotte, North Carolina. He was adopted by Eben Alexander Jr. and his wife Elizabeth West Alexander and raised in Winston-Salem, North Carolina with three siblings. He attended Phillips Exeter Academy, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1975, and Duke University Medical Center where he received his MD in 1980. It's an impressive resume. Yeah, this is no joke, this guy. He, Alexander has taught and had appointments at Duke University Medical Center, Brigham and Women's Hospital, the University of Massachusetts Medical School, University of Virginia School of Medicine, 
Boston's Children's Hospital, and the Daner-Farber Cancer Institute. So I only go through all this stuff. So you see, I mean, this this guy's for real. Yeah. You so know, he, he, not he, a, this story is not coming from a clown. Right. And he, he also uh, Harvard. So. Well, now that you thoroughly depressed me about my life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my degree seems so tiny now. Let's carry on. Yeah. <laughs> so Lynch, Lynchburg, Virginia, November 10th, 2008. Eben awakes at 4.30 a.m., not knowing what has awakened him so early. As he shifts in bed, a wave of pain shoots down his spine. He remembers having a slight back pain the night before, but this was far more intense. The more he awoke, the worse the pain got. He decided to take a nice warm bath to help relieve the pain. Once he swung his feet to the floor, the pain ratcheted up another notch. A dull, punishing throb penetrated deep to the base of his spine. He slowly made his way down the hall towards the bathroom. Once in the bathroom, he began running the bath. He eased himself into the tub, hoping the warm water would help ease the pain. He was wrong. The pain became intensively worse, and he was afraid he was going to have to call his wife Holly to come help him out. After another jolt of pain shot down his spine, he realized this wasn't just the flu or anything of the sort. This was way worse. But what was it? Eben slowly got out of the bath and returned to his bedroom where he flopped down onto the bed. His wife Holly awoke and turned over towards him. What's going on, Eben, she asked. It's my back. I'm in serious pain. Holly began to rub his back, making it actually feel a little bit better. Eben stayed in the bed way later than he normally would have, while his wife was contemplating if she should call the ambulance. He had told her, it's okay, it's not that bad, please don't call the ambulance. It's typical, you know, the doctor, they always say the doctors are the worst patients. Yeah. You know, no matter if something's wrong, they're just not going to bring themselves to the hospital. So she left Eben in the room, and unbeknownst to her, he was beginning to slip into unconsciousness. When she did return two hours later, she discovered he was having a full-blown grand mal seizure. Damn, that progressed fast. From this point on, Eben would not be conscious for the next seven days. So he was, Eben was transported by squad to Lynchburg ER in critical condition. Lynchburg ER is actually the hospital he's working at at the time. He's oh. working there as a neurosurgeon. So they sent him to the same ER. You know, the, people, the doctors and staff all knew him there. Yeah. When he arrived, they began to run several tests to try to understand what had happened to cause this and what the day prior was a perfectly healthy man. Eben was intubated and sedated to protect his airway. When not seeing the results she was expecting from the test, the doctor decided to do a spinal puncture to check for meningitis. Normally, when one has a spinal tap, a normal fluid would be clear, meaning an infection may not be likely. But when she tapped Eben, the fluid came almost gushing out. It was white and full of pus. I'm, so, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with meningitis, but I don't know exactly what it is. It's like a swelling on the brain. Yeah, and itis is always – itis, when you see that, and something means swelling. Yeah. You know, and uh, the men, that's the, men, the layer over the brain. So, so that puts, yeah, it's, that it's puts complete, pressure on the brain as well. Right, right? especially with the, all the fluid. She said when she punctured them, the fluid came gushing out. Yeah. So, I mean, that means – there's a lot of fluid in there. The and more fluid that's in there, more pressure that's causing yeah. on the brain. So that can't be good. Right. Especially in this pus in it. I mean, that's a bad infection. Yeah. You see it. It's usually, I, when you, the spinal fluid isn't perfectly clear, it's like straw colored. I think it's how they describe it. Yeah. And for it to be whited out and have pus in it, that's, that's a major infection stuff going on. Yeah. 
It's actually so. making my spine hurt just hearing Right. You know, I've seen spinal taps. I've seen it, you know, come out and I've seen them do burr holes and like someone's brain where they, you know, to relieve that yeah. pressure. They actually did that to him. Yeah, I wouldn't be watching that. One, I don't do needles. And I don't like anything with the spine, so you throw a needle in the spine. I'm <laughs> There's out. a double whammy for you, yeah. <laughs> um, I've seen it. I've seen them, you know, spinal taps. I've, I've actually helped hold patients in place while they do them. Yeah, That's I, not I nearly – it's yeah. the burr holes that they do. Like in his case, they actually have to go in and they drill a hole in the top of your head and they'll run this little tube, a really small tube in there to take out some of that fluid. Yeah. You know, because like you said, that fluid causes so much pressure on your brain. And uh, the more pressure, the longer it's like that, the more damage it'll yeah, do to your brain. And uh, yeah, they put that little tube in there, and that sometimes there's so much pressure in there, it comes shooting out. I saw a teenager get it, and when the doc put that tube in, the fluid was coming out so there's so much pressure behind it that it was so thin that it was actually spraying all over his shirt. He couldn't see it because it was so uh, fine because yeah. it was under so much pressure. Yeah. It was just like running down his shirt. I was from the side. I could see it happening. And I'm like, ah, uh, there's some stuff shooting out of there, bud. So, but yeah, so I mean, with a lot of pressure, like the more fluid, the more pressure. Yeah. So this isn't good. Most cases of meningitis are caused by a virus and are quite treatable. Some are caused by a bacteria and are very, very fatal. Even when treated rapidly, with they have a mortality rate of like 15 to 40%. But as it turned out, this wasn't your normal bacterial infection that's usually seen in meningitis. Evan actually had an E. coli infection. Ooh. This is super rare in an adult. It, you'll see that you can see uh, what I was reading. I don't know this, but reading on the on meningitis, this type of meningitis, you may see it in an infant. You know, is usually an infant. You don't ever see this in an adult. It was rare. It's very, very rare. It's actually the cases range somewhere between one and ten million. Wow. So, at this point, Eben was only given a one percent chance of survival. Wow. So he would remain in the ICU unconscious for the next seven days, or would he? Eben underwent a medical procedure to relieve pressure on his brain and was placed in a medically induced coma to support his recovery. So this procedure is what I was talking about. Yeah. This is where they do a burr hole and take that pressure off, try to let that fluid come yeah, out. That's where I step into the hallway. So yeah, you, this is where you step out. <laughs> At this point in the story, this, from this point on, this is Eben actually has left his body. Yeah. And, at this point in the story, Eben awakes in a place he describes that he found himself in a dark, murky space that seemed almost like mud or perhaps like dirty jello is how he described it. He called this this whole realm the earthworm eye view. According to Alexander in this realm, he felt as if he was a tiny worm wriggling around in a cramped and uncomfortable space. He describes feeling isolated and cut off from the rest of the universe during this phase of his experience. He notes that he could see nothing but darkness, and he felt as if he was trapped in a tiny suffocating space. He writes that he had no sense of up or down. He had no idea where he was and how long he'd been there. Despite the discomfort and isolation that he experienced in this realm, Alexander notes that he had a sense of peace and calm during this phase of his journey. He described feeling as if he were being held and supported by a loving and nurturing force even though he could not see or understand what was happening to him. Eventually, he reported that he had merged from this earth, earthworm eye view. There is like 
in the book, it goes into this this whole long. I'm not going to go through all of it, but it, he says he was in this for who, he doesn't know how long, a period of time. And then suddenly like a light would appear. And it was a light that was accompanied by beautiful music. Yeah. And it's 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 kind of hard to describe. But he notices that as this light opens up, it was like a pathway allowing him to leave this realm and go into another realm. So You know, the, the whole out-of-body thing, though, <clears throat> if I was him, obviously you're hoping to go someplace, like, you know, sweet, like you picture the out-of-body. The earthworm part just wouldn't be doing it for me, man. You could play yeah, me we, some play me some badass tunes, but I'm like, why the, <laughs> why the hell am I an earthworm? <laughs> right. I mean, that, as he describes it, he re, this is like it seemed like almost primordial. Like yeah. in this, it was like before, you know, like when existence wasn't really, you know, existence was just that's what it sounds like to me. Like you're going back to like so he began, before we were actually human. And I think he like mentions your own evolution again or something like that. Yeah, and I think he mentions in it that. At this point, he wasn't human. It was just like he was a presence. He existed yeah. in this, you know, he didn't feel bad, but he didn't feel much of anything. Yeah. Well, at least he heard music. So. Right. So he had some good <laughs> tunes. I'm sure if, it was Guns N' Roses. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Eventually, Alexander reports that he had merged from the Earth earthworm eye view and found himself in a new, more expansive realm where he encountered beings of light and energy and experiences a sense of unity with the universe. He notes that this experience was transformative and has had a profound impact on his understanding of consciousness and the nature of reality. According to Alexander's account, he found himself in a place he describes as like a gateway, a portal, a passageway into the realm of reality. He called this area the Gateway Valley. So he's got, you know, the, there's three different places that he goes to in this journey and uh, he's he's got his own name for each one of them. You know, the first one is the Earthworm Eye View. Yeah. And then he moves into this next one, which is he describes as like a gateway valley. Sounds like the rents are probably a little higher here. It's, it's definitely, you know, <laughs> definitely up there a little bit. He's moved from like Baltic, the ghetto. Baltic Ave yeah. to like Park <laughs> <Yeah>. Place. <laughs> <clears throat> Love a good mystery that leaves you wanting more? Check out my podcast. Hi, I'm Kadra, the host of Perplexity, a Mystery Podcast. I tell tales every single week that have left me perplexed. You'll hear true crime cases, mysterious disappearances, learn about cults, hear baffling sightings of cryptids, chilling paranormal encounters, and even dark and weird history. I release new episodes every Wednesday, and you can listen anywhere podcasts are available. I'm also on Patreon, and you can even watch me on YouTube. Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Stories that will leave you perplexed. He explains that in this realm, he encountered a beautiful and vibrant world that was filled with vivid colors and indescribable sounds and a sense of overwhelming love and acceptance. He describes feeling completely free from his physical body and the limitations of his human existence. And he found himself surrounded by beings of light and energy that he believes were angelic and divine in nature. Alexander describes feeling a sense of profound peace and joy in this realm, and he notes from that the time seemed to have no meaning. He said that in both realms. You know, he didn't know how long he was there, and this yeah. one, it, the time had no meaning to him at all. He said that he was able to communicate telepathically with the beings he encountered. 
and he was able to understand and absorb vast amounts of knowledge and insight. One of the most striking aspects of Alexander's experience is that he felt a sense of complete unity with the universe and all of its inhabitants. He explains that he no longer felt like an individual consciousness, but rather a part of a vast and interconnected whole. Alexander also writes about encountering a beautiful young woman whom he believed was his deceased sister. So, as I mentioned earlier on in the story, he was adopted. And now this sister that he's talking about, he didn't know that this was his sister. So he was adopted, and he'd been trying to get in contact with his adopted family, which he did before he actually went into this coma. He knew that he had a sister, but he had never seen her. Oh, so she wasn't part so of his adopted family. She was his actual She was sister. his actual oh, biological you. sister. But he had never seen her. She had passed away before he w- ever had a chance to meet her. But uh, later on in the, in the story, he actually not he actually goes and he meets with you know his adopted family, and they show him a picture of his sister, and it's it's this woman that guided him through his experience. See, you know, it's real typical in an out of body or near death experience that a person will have a guide with them, and it's usually somebody that they know. Uh, yeah, I've heard of that like several times. Yeah. But there's one thing about his out of body experience is that. Uh, he had no recollection of who he was, which isn't common. You know, usually when you're, when you have an out of body experience, you're still aware of your earthly life and who you are and everything about you. But with his, he had no recollection of who he was. He didn't know who this girl was. He had never met her until later on, further on, did he see a picture of her and it didn't even snap with him right away. It took him a while to realize that's the one that was with me throughout my journey. Yeah. Um, Evan describes an aspect of his near-life experience that he also uh, refers to as the core. So like I said, there was three phases in his out-of-body experience. We have the earthworm eye view, then he goes into this gateway valley. And I didn't mention in the gateway valley, he's he's with this woman, who he finds out is his sister. And they're traveling above, they're like flying above this, it's very earth-like, but just beautiful, and there's villagers. He describes like almost a village. There's villagers down there. He describes seeing actually dogs and uh, stuff like beings like that. And uh, he travels, I guess he ascends up from there. So I'm just trying to explain like, because this is actually kind of confusing how his yeah, yeah. his journey goes. But well, it like, makes sense to him because he lived it. But like, right. hearing about it, it's not quite as. So he goes from this gateway valley and he ascends from this gateway valley to this next uh, realm, which he calls the core. Evan explains the core as a vibrant and pulsating realm of energy that he felt was the source of all creation. He described the core as a vast and infinite space that was filled with light and love and notes that it felt like a homecoming, a return to a place of perfect peace and hom- harmony. He also notes that during his encounter with the core, he felt a sense of unity with all creation, which he did in the realm before. He explains that he felt as if he were connected to everything. This in what he describes as a core is like God himself. Yeah. You know, he goes in, the, in this area. This is where the Almighty Being is. This is where whatever you want to call him. Mm-hmm. I think in the book he actually describes him as Om, which is you know the no. You, you go back to so many people with their meditation and stuff. The yeah. Om yeah. that I think that's what he uses as, to describe him as you know God or the Almighty. 
His description of the Corps has resonated with many readers and spiritual seekers who have been inspired by his accounts of the realm's infinite love and consciousness that transcends the limitation of the physical world. His experience of feeling connected to all creation and encountering a source of perfect peace and harmony has been seen as a powerful testament to the power of the human spirit and the mysteries of the universe. Eben's description of leaving his body during his severe illness is an extraordinary account that has captured the attention of many readers. His description of encountering a beautiful and vibrant world that was full with love and knowledge and a sense of unity with the universe has sparked new conversations about the nature of consciousness and the mysteries of human existence. Despite encountering incredible realms of light and love, Alexander ultimately returned to his physical body and the earthly plane. He was sent back to his physical body because he had a mission to share his experience with others and to help bring greater awareness and understanding to the nature of consciousness in the afterlife. He notes that during his encounter with a divine or spiritual realm, he received a message that was to use his experience to help others and to bring great love and understanding into the world. Alexander also notes that his experience of returning to the physical body was difficult as he had to relearn how to use his body and his mind after being disconnected from them for such a long period of time. So for seven days straight, he his claim is from the time that he got there mm-hmm. till seven days later, he wasn't there. He was gone. He was here. Yeah. So in earth time, seven days. You know, who knows what that is on the other side. When he returned to his physical body, he was in a state of shock and disorientation. He initially struggled to comprehend his surroundings and to remember who he was. So at this point, still coming back, he still had to struggle trying to remember who he was. His brain at this point has been through something. Yeah, I imagine. It's been through it, you know? Yeah. It took some time for him to fully grasp the fact that he had survived a life-threatening illness. He also reported experienced intense physical pain and discomfort upon awakening. He had lost a significant amount of weight and had to relearn how to walk and perform basic tasks. He also struggled with the emotional aftermath of the near-death experience, which left him with a profound sense of awe and a newfound belief in the afterlife. He talks about in in the book, before this happened, he had religion in his life, but he wasn't real religious. The more he'd gone to school and the more he learned about the brain, and believing that the brain created consciousness, the more further away from religion and the belief of, yeah. you know, of any type of religion, you know. So through his through his learning, further disconnected him from the church and religion altogether. It seems but, a lot of times like science and religion have a hard time it's meshing. Ra- it's you one don't, or the other. It's you don't a, see them crossing a, a lot. It, it's know? rare for somebody to be deeply both, it seems. I might be talking on my ass on that, but it, no, seems, but like you're, it, it you're, seems like they're separate. You're not wrong. Yeah. And the more education a person has, I believe, the less religious they typically tend to be. Yeah. Doesn't mean that they should be, but there's definitely a separ- yeah. separation there. Overall, Alexander's return to his physical body was a difficult, challenging experience, but one that ultimately led to a deeper appreciation for the miracle of life and the possibility of higher spiritual reality beyond our physical existence. But Alexander's medical condition and recovery have been the subject of interest and discussion among medical professionals and the general public since he has written about his experience in the book Proof of Heaven. So that's where most of this information comes from. It's from that book, Book of Heaven. Like I said, he has several others. This is the one. I've read this book several times. Yeah. 
I reread it, you know, preparing for this. It's it's a really good book. I recommend you. I really recommend it to you. Some doctors have criticized Alexander's interpretation of his experience and his claims about the nature of consciousness in the afterlife. They have argued that his near-death experience may have been a result of his medical condition and the effects of medication rather than a genuine spiritual experience. However, others have acknowledged that the uniqueness of Alexander's case and the difficulty in explaining his experience from a purely scientific perspective, they have also commended Alexander for his courage in sharing his story and for raising awareness about the limits of our current understanding of consciousness and the mysteries of the human brain. In terms of his recovery, Alexander's medical team has acknowledged that his survival and the extent of his recovery were remarkable given the severity of his illness. However, they've not commented on the spiritual aspect of his experience or the claims he has made about the afterlife. So, you know, as a doc, you know, you know he was criticized for this. You know, he comes out and tells his story. He's getting nothing. It's got to take balls for him because you know you're going to get torched for that story. But there's always going to be people that aren't going to believe. But from his standpoint, what the hell are you going to do? I mean, it's your story. They're either going to believe you or they're not. It's not like you can prove it. Like, oh, shit, I got this video. Let me let me show you. Right. What does this guy got to gain from no, this? this is, that's another thing I look at. What does he have to gain from this? Notoriety? I mean, he's a neurosurgeon. Oh, yeah. You know, dude's getting paid. This ain't about money. There's no chance this story is going to bounce you up. And do, how do you think it's going to come across to his colleagues? Oh, yeah. His colleagues aren't going to be like, oh, you know, they're going to ridicule him. He's going to, he doesn't have a lot to gain from this experience. I mean, some people will say that he, you know, he's selling snake oil. The I truth just, for him, good for him that he didn't give a shit. Like, you know, I've got a story to tell. Yeah. You, you take it. He's going to tell it. his yeah. truth. Yeah. yeah. Whether it really happened or not, he 100% believes that it happened. Yeah. You know, maybe it is the brain. Maybe it is his brain doing this, but his brain was in such bad shape. And, you know, the cerebral, I can't, I'm going to mess up the words, the cerebral <laughs> cortex. You guys tune back yeah. in in about two minutes when Scott gets this word correct. Cerebral cortex. There we go. Was fried. Yeah. I mean, that's the part when I mentioned that he said that the part of his brain, which they believe created consciousness was just fried. The infection was so bad there. It was just eating away at his brain. And, you know, the antibiotics weren't working at first, and it was continuing to get worse. So his whole ex- explanation to why he – that this couldn't have been happening in his brain because his he claims his brain was shut down. It wasn't well, I working. I imagine it was. Like, dude, I felt yeah. like shit for two days after my second COVID shot. <laughs> <laughs> this guy had meningitis, a spinal tap, a whole – Right, gone drilled for, in his skull. Gone for seven days. Left his body yeah. for seven days. So yeah, I probably shouldn't have been bitching. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, them COVID shots suck, dude. You ain't wrong. Uh, Alexander doesn't dispute that his brain had almost no activity during his coma. Actually, before I read this part, this is actually from an article from it's the Harvard Crimson, and this is an article. Uh, called do not harm and this is this is an article they wrote about alexander i believe this is attached to harvard it's the harvard crimson so in this article it says alexander doesn't dispute that his brain had almost no activity during his coma actually it's one of the facts about his experience that he stresses most he couldn't have been hallucinating because his brain wasn't working his apparent journey to the other side he claims is evidence that something about us a soul a consciousness a spirit is independent from our bodies. 
that we come from and return to the universe itself. The idea stands in direct opposition to materialism, the doctrine that everything, including our consciousness, is generated by the physical world. Materialism is the basis of modern science as we know it. Alexander, though, believes the spirit exists separately from matter. To Eben, the conclusion is born of logical reasoning, not of a disposition towards religion. He doesn't ask his followers to believe in what he says regardless of scientific evidence. He asks them to believe because of it. And Alexander's telling his near-death experience changed his life. At the time, he was a clinical director of the brain program at the Focus Ultrasound Surgery Foundation in Charlottesville, Virginia. Today, his professional trajectory bears little resemblance to a more traditional medical career path than he was on then. He has authored several best-selling books, appeared on daytime television, and hosted public speaking engagements across the globe, all in the intention of spreading his philosophy to the world. But what separates Alexander from others is similar stories of the afterlife is his authority. By the time he had his near-death experience, he'd been a neurosurgeon for more than 20 years, holding appointments at numerous prestigious medical schools, including Harvard. Alexander is, for obvious reason, a controversial figure in the medical world. Many professionals, perhaps the most famous, the late Oliver W. Sachs, have publicly disputed the medical claims in Alexander's account of his near-death experience. They attribute many aspects of his experience to the tricks the brain plays when it's shutting down. For example, changes in blood pressure can cause what looks like tunnels in one's vision, and bursts of neurotransmitters can create the impression of bright lights. Others worry that he is peddling snake oil to the sick, using his story to sell false hope to a vulnerable population. But Alexander takes issue with the charge that he's encouraging the public to develop their spiritual lives making makes him a quack. He envisions a type of medicine that is continuous with religion and its commitment to heal a patient's full self, their body, and their spirit. So... Well, my question here, like, there, so he's peddling snake oil in their opinion. So the worst crime, and he's not making money. So the worst crime anybody can accuse him of is making somebody that's dying anyway leave this world with a sense of peace. I mean, like, yeah, right. where's the crime in that? Like, gee, you bas you bastard! The guy left this earth with hope. The crime is the people that he works with. You know, he's claiming he knows something they don't, yeah. or that he believes something that they they can't wrap their head around. It so it's hogwash, it's shit. You know. Yeah. So I mean, he ain't hurt. He ain't hurting anybody. Is he making money from it? Yeah, I know he's making money off of his books. Yeah. But these books aren't paying. You know, he it, it ain't going to be any more than he was making oh, yeah, as I'm a sure. neurosurgeon. Yeah. Money wasn't an issue for this guy. Is he? You don't. You probably covered it. I missed it. Is he still currently a doctor? Or is he retired? He is still a. Yeah. Doc, he's a doctor, but he's most of his path is he's moved towards. Now. Yeah, he does public speaking. He he writes books. He's got a book with another individual too that he co-wrote with. I can't remember her name. But I mean, he does this stuff. I I think he still practices. I'm not positive. I know I know his trajectory's definitely changed. But I really doubt this is making him more money than he was yeah. making as a neurosurgeon. <clears throat> For sure. You know. Uh, so I mean, that wasn't. I mean, his whole story could be, you know, it could be bullshit, like we always say. But I mean, he believes it's true. Yeah. If you listen to him, actually, I've listened to him in a few different interviews that he did. He's very clinical. When he tells his story, he tells it the exact same way every time. 
You know, it's very. It seems like it's coming from a neurosurgeon. Yeah, if you know what I mean. He can speak, so he, does, he very, doesn't have the audience like hooting and hollering and rolling it's, around. No, it's, it's very direct. It's like, it, uh, it's like getting. You know, it's like you, being, speaking to Bueller, a neurosurgeon. Bueller, anyone? <laughs> it's actually really, anyone. It's really fast without a lot of athlete. Yeah. You know, but uh, he believes this. You know, he's a neurosurgeon. He's got reasons to not believe it to be true. But it it was. The experience is so overwhelming to him. He's 100% convinced that this is what happened. And with the authority that he does have, I tend to believe him. All right. So I think we all want to believe in something beyond the door and, you know, after this and whatnot. But my, I have two issues with the story, first of all. They got badass tunes on the other side, but I'm an earthworm. <laughs> but then after I progress through that and we go beyond the gate, as he described it, uh, so there's beautiful women there. But it's your sister. <laughs> I like to subscribe. Sounds right to, up your alley, I like man. to subscribe to like the Vikings and Valhalla, and they're not your sister. <laughs> nothing about no forty virgins. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing like that. His story differs yeah. from theirs greatly. Yep, yeah. this isn't your heaven for sure. <laughs> There's one really beautiful girl here, but she's your sister. You're related. <laughs> I'm your sister. <laughs> That's a Joe Dirt reference. Anyways. But no, that's the that's the case of uh, Eben Alexander. If you guys want to know more, check out his books. I mean, pull up some interviews that he's done. He's a very interesting guy. He's got uh, a lot of cool information. So no, it's definitely a good story. Thanks for uh, sharing that one with us, bud. Uh, if you guys have any questions, follow ups, uh, stories of your own, definitely hit us up at Beyond the Shadows two hundred seven at gmail dot com, and we will be back in uh, just a second. And before you go, if you guys can go on when you go on, if you could give us a rating, you know, please a good one, you know, but go in and give us a rating. It helps push us out to other people. You know, we're trying to build this podcast. We're trying to get as many people to listen as possible. And we're going to keep giving you giving you that content every week. We're going to I think we're going to try to put them out on every Friday. We're not you know, we're going to do our best to keep on that schedule. Yeah, it but. should be yeah, with them. I think give or take it'll always be probably Friday night. By by Friday night at the latest, I think. Yeah. So, uh we're going to do uh this week's fire pit here in a second. Thanks for uh, listening, guys. If tales of ghostly hauntings, Bigfoot encounters, extraterrestrial interactions, and cosmic awakenings are your cup of tea, then join me, Eric Salagi, host of Uncomfortable Podcast, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Make uncomfortable your home for the topics that reside on the fringe of our reality. Eyewitnesses, researchers, and experiencers Join me on a weekly basis to delve into their paranormal and otherworldly experiences. Heard in over 65 countries worldwide, follow Uncomfortable Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your casts. Uncomfortable is now presented in video form on YouTube as well. So, as always, my friends, stay uncomfortable. Okay, for this week's uh, fire pit, I'm actually going to talk about the Vermont Hill People, which is not a well-known story, but it's it's crazy nonetheless. So you'll be shocked you haven't heard it before. 
Uh, so over 300 people in the United States are currently cryogenically frozen in hopes that the medical community makes advances in the future that can allow them to be successfully thawed in whatever ailed them cured. As of now, no one has ever been reanimated from a cryogenic state. Scientists are well aware that some animals are able to slow down their systems throughout the winter in a sort of state of suspended animation known as hibernation. Bears, snakes, bees, and other animals are all able to fall into a deep sleep that conserves their energy and allows their bodies to efficiently use their water and fat stores to maintain them throughout the long winter. When the body drops below 95 degrees, the heart rate and breathing slow down and the body begins to use the fat stores to continue the internal furnace to burn to allow the internal furnace to burn instead of ingesting calories. Is it possible for humans to also use this process and survive? As of today, science says no. But if a newspaper story published in Montpelier, Vermont in December of 1887 is true, then one Vermont family has unlocked the secret. The reporter alleges that he found entries in his Uncle William's diary detailing how one poor hillside family farming family was able to preserve their short food supply, and endure the winter by putting their old and infirm into a state of suspension during the winter months. This supposedly took place about 20 minutes from Montpelier. Rather than paraphrase his account, I will read it directly from the way it was published. The author was listed as A.M., and I found this account listed in a story by Wesley S. Griswold from Mischief in the Mountains, published by Vermont Life in 1870. January 7th, I went on the mountain today and witnessed what to me was a horrible sight. It seems that the dwellers there who are unable, either from age or from reasons to contribute to the support of their families, are disposed of in the winter months in a manner that will shock the one who reads this diary, unless that person lives in the vicinity. I will describe what I saw. Six persons, four men, and two women one of the men a cripple about 30 years old, the other five past the age of usefulness, lay on the earthly floor of the cabin drugged into insensibility, while members of their family were gathered about them in apparent indifference. In a short time, the unconscious bodies were inspected by several old people who said, They are ready. They were then stripped of all their clothing except for a single garment, then the bodies were carried outside and laid on logs exposed to the bitter cold mountain air, the operation having been delayed several days for suitable weather. It was night when the bodies were carried out, and the full moon occasionally obscured by flying clouds shone on their upturned ghastly faces, and a horrible fascination kept me by the bodies as long as I could endure the severe cold. Soon the noses, ears, and fingers began to turn white, then the limbs and face assumed a tallow look. I could stand the cold no longer and went inside where I found the friends in cheerful conversation. In about an hour, I went out and looked at the bodies. They were fast freezing. I could not shut out the sight of those freezing bodies outside, neither could I bear to be in the darkness. But I piled on the wood in the cavernous fireplace and seated on a shingle block past the dreary night, terror-stricken by the horrible sights I had witnessed. January 8th. 
We shall want our men to plant our corn next spring, said a youngish-looking woman, the wife of one of the frozen men. And if you want to see them resuscitated, you need come here about the 10th of next May. May 10th. The men commenced work at once, some, some shoveling away the snow and others tearing away the brush. Soon the box was visible. The cover was taken off, the layers of straw removed, and the foodies, it says, but I'm assuming it means bodies, frozen and apparently lifeless, lifted out and laid on the snow. Large troughs made of hemlock logs were placed nearby, filled with tepid water, into which the bodies were separately placed, with the head slightly raised. Boiling water was then poured into the trough from kettles hung on poles nearby, until the water in the trough was as hot as I could hold my hand in. Hemlock boughs had been put in the boiling water in such quantities that they had given the water the color of wine. After lying in this bath for about an hour, color began to return to the bodies, when all hands began rubbing and chafing them. This continued about another hour, when a slight twitching of the muscles hit the face and limbs, followed by audible gasps that showed that life was not quenched and that the vitality was returning. Spirits were then given in small quantities and allowed to trickle down their throats. Soon they could swallow, and more was given them when their eyes opened and they began to talk and finally sat up in their bathtubs. They were then taken out and assisted to the house, where after a hearty dinner, they seemed as well as ever, and in no wise injured, but rather refreshed by their long sleep of four months. Is such an account possible, or is this just another urban legend? What year was this supposed to happen? We scroll back. It was 18, I believe, 1887. We need to go back and find these people because I've got a few family members I'd like to try this on. The December 1887. I give it the old college try. If it works, it works. If it don't, it don't. I think people have been pitching bodies out of the snow for years. (laughs) It's generally not with the intent of refreshing and reviving them. Now, it's, it's one of those things where it's probably horseshit. But not necessarily. I mean, science has been on that that trail for a while. Is it possible? I have heard that story. Is before. it possible that these people just had the balls to try? I mean, because generally people that are cryogenically frozen were fucked anyway, for lack of a better word. Well, I mean, there's times where people have gone into a river, and you know what I mean. They're to into the cold water, and it slows. When they go into the cold, their survival rate is way better than when they're. Uh, Going to like a warm river here to drown there. Oh yeah, you know. And nowadays in healthcare, we use we use uh, hypothermic. You know, we cool people off when something's bad. You know, that's they'll use cold saline now. Yeah. You See, know, your so, first I mean, instinct is to think that whor- that story is horseshit, and maybe it is, but I I don't think you can dismiss it outright. I mean, uh, there's it, always a possibility. You know, crazy stuff. Or maybe it was just moonshine they gave yeah, them. You know? They were so shit-faced, it took them four months to wake be, up. It is Vermont. That could be just a shit little weed there. involved. I think I was out for like three months. Once. <laughs> All right, everybody. That's the fire pit for this week. Uh, we're uh, back next week for episode five. Ryan, what do you got for us on five? Uh, so we get a story from the uh, 1930s era Cleveland. It's uh, about about a killer known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. And trust me when I say this dude or girl was sick. So it's it's a great 
true crime story. So uh, hopefully you guys join us next week for that piece. And yeah, and you guys want to send in your own stories, send them to beyondtheshadows207 at gmail.com. And if you're going to send us some nasty reviews, that's beyondtheshadows at 208 at gmail.com. Yeah, and like I said, they didn't catch the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury run, so we're going to send some nasty shit. <laughs> Maybe he's still kicking around, and we'll give him your address. <laughs> so. All right, guys. Thanks for everything. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next one. All right. Catch you in week five. Hi. My name is Joe, and I'm the host of Tales, Trails, and Taverns. In this show, Rob and I like to take an active approach by hiking out to haunted, creepy, and abandoned places. We love the adventure and discovering the dark history of the locations we visit. We release a new episode every Friday on Apple, Spotify, and Patreon, as well as bonus episodes on varying Tuesdays. But don't just take my word for it, we have great listeners who have left some awesome reviews. Oh, I love adventure, but during those times when I can't get into the outback, oh, I like to listen to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. Those boys dig deep into the dark history. And their first-hand experiences really delivers the excitement. This podcast is a beaut. Back when I was the governor, I didn't have time to listen to podcasts. But now that I'm retired from politics, I can focus on my two passions. Pumping iron and listening to tales, trails, and taverns. It doesn't matter who we are. What matters is that we all listen to tales, trails, and taverns. I love listening to the podcast. Wait, what's a podcast again? It's an audio show you listen to. Oh, like on the radio? Sort of, yeah. Okay. I love listening to Tulips and Tiddlywinks. It's Tales, Trails, and Taverns. And what do you do again? Hike to scary places and drink beer. Sounds terrifying. Okay. I like to listen to Terrifying Tea Time, but not on the radio. Uh, okay, thank you. You did great. You're welcome. Say, so you're kind of cute. Is there a Mrs. Tales, Trails, and Taverns? Now, now you get it? No actual celebrities or political figures have endorsed Tales, Trails, and Taverns. All the reviews you've heard were written, fully, by the host, George Lennox, as well as the impersonations of celebrities, politicians, and movie characters. I meant no harm. Please don't sue me.